Tata Nano didn't start with empathy. Tata Nano started with sympathy. There was Sultan Tata traveling in his car, looking out of the window, seeing a family of four people on a bike or a scooter getting drenched in the rain, and he felt for them, wish they had a car. If he would have actually bothered to speak to them, that if I get a car for you for one lakh rupees, would you have the money to buy petrol for it? Would you have the parking space? Would you have money for maintenance of the car? Maybe he would have gotten an answer which wouldn't have encouraged him to take that path, but he didn't because he felt for them. So empathy is has to be the starting point of innovation. You're not sympathy. You're not solving a problem for somebody. You're solving your problem with somebody. With is pretty important. Yeah. If one were to really understand the problem, one needs to develop good observation skills, good listening skills, and a deep sense of empathy. for the people whom you are wanting to really help this is episode number 108 of the inspiring talk with dr pavan soni welcome back inside yet another episode of the inspiring talk my name is bijay gautam i am your host for this show each week i interview today's most successful and inspiring personalities to help you realize your inner potential do you feel that you are not able to come up with interesting ideas at your job How about a systematic approach in identifying problems to solve as an entrepreneur? What makes some people really creative and is creativity a learnable skill? Well, to answer all of these questions, I have invited Dr. Pavan Soni on today's episode. Dr. Pavan is an innovation evangelist who believes that creativity is a learnable skill and we all can become creative. When I reached out to him for this interview I knew that he is a very logical system driven person who loves creating system to solve problems in businesses but I was not aware that Dr Pavan uses a lot of heuristics to solve problems even in his day to day life throughout this episode you will learn a ton of hacks and systems to solve problem and make your life and decision making simpler He is the founder of Inflection Point, a consulting firm focusing on design thinking, strategic acumen, and consulting skills. He is the author of the book Design Your Thinking. Pavan is a columnist at Mint, Your Story, Inc. Forty Two, Entrepreneur, and People Matters. He has been invited five times to speak at TEDx and is featured as one of the hundred digital influencers of 2020 by Your Story. He is the real deal when it comes to creativity, innovation, and design thinking. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Pavan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm really excited to have you here, and especially given that we have this interesting topic about ideas, creativity, and design thinking. You know that we're going to discuss. So I want to jump straight into this, Pavan. a lot of people i encounter and i have been in that place where a lot of people say that you know what i want to do something in my life whether that's an employee working at an organization and wanting to venture into entrepreneurship or maybe an entrepreneur who is looking at pivoting in their business but a lot of people say you know what i don't have any ideas what should i do and people kind of feel stuck so how can people come up with a lot of ideas is there a way that you can generate tons and tons of ideas 
So I think what we need to understand is that idea is a bad starting point of any venture. A good starting point is a problem. And coming up with a problem is not trivial. It's, it's never easy to come up with a decent enough problem. And the reason is that if you look at any organizational context, what do organizations have more often? Do they have more ideas or do they have more problems? And you would realize that most organizations are full of ideas. If you talk to entrepreneurs, do they have dearth of ideas? The answer is no. But the bigger question is ideas for what? What is it that you are looking to solve with those ideas? Do you have a genuine problem? So I always push my people that whenever they come to with an idea, the question which I ask them is that, what is it that this idea is heading towards? Are you looking at some sort of a business which you want to start off? Are you looking towards a social problem, an economic problem, a personal problem that you want to really address? And if you have that bit of clarity, then I think ideas are galore. So between having a good idea versus having a good problem which needs to be solved, I always gravitate towards having good problem that needs to be solved. And arriving at that problem is a non-trivial affair. We often think that we know what the problem is. Or maybe the customer would tell us what the problem is. But that is not the case. Let me give you a couple of examples of why knowing the problem is the problem. It's not ideas is the problem. Knowing the problem itself is the problem. For instance, for a very long time uh, in the Indian market, a lot of technology companies wanted to address the uh, hyper-local groceries market. To begin with, Amazon wanted this, Flipkart wanted this. But the only company that came pretty close to cracking it up was Big Basket. And the reason Big Basket do it is not because Big Basket is more technologically sophisticated than Amazon or did have head start as against Flipkart. In fact, Flipkart was a big player, early entrant as compared to Big Basket. But the reason why Big Basket could track it, and as a result, Tata's acquired Big Basket at a hefty sum of close to about $1.2 billion, is the fact that Big Basket could understand the real problem. The real problem that the customer had was that when I order something online, I need the full basket. I don't need to order five things from five different places, number one. Number two, I need to get the delivery as per my convenience and not as per your convenience in terms of what suits you logistically. So what Big Basket gave, which was unprecedented in the Indian market, is that it allowed customer to choose a delivery slot. You never get allowed to choose a delivery slot in terms of the number of actual hour of the day, not the day of the week, but hour of the day. And the second thing is they almost promised 99.9% of fill rate when it comes out of delivery. So that was the problem that they were able to crack. And as a result, ideas can keep flowing in. Similarly, if I look at this company called ID Fresh Food, now, ID Fresh Food is another Bangalore-based uh, startup that started somewhere in late 2000s. And the idea of Mr. Mustafa and his cousins was to sell idli dosa butter. Now, what was the problem that they wanted to solve? South Indians eat idli dosa. That's a staple in this part of the world. But uh, most people, because of their busy schedule, are not able to prepare that at home. So what do they do? They buy it from outside. But wherever they buy it from, it is not hygienic. It's not in good quality, quantity, et cetera, et cetera. So there was no good source to get this butter from. And that's where they started this at a very makeshift arrangement in Bangalore. And today it is a huge, huge brand. So once again, the starting point was the problem. In fact, I was just reading David Epstein, Range, his book. And what comes out, you know, intriguingly from his research and work as well, is that we always put a premium on ideas. And perseverance of those ideas. But what we do not put a premium on, and that is what I try to contest in my book and in my conversations, is the importance of locking onto a solid problem. Okay, once you have a solid problem, trust me, you can 
outsource ideation, but you can never ever outsource the act of discovering the problem. So I think that is what is the mindset shift that we would need to introduce through this channel. Wow. So what you're saying is, if you're just saying that I don't have ideas, then you are looking probably in the wrong place. Instead, ask yourself, hey, what is the problem that I can solve? Right. And then go and find that problem. So is there any strategy or method or maybe steps that you want to give to people who want to go and find the problems? And is there, obviously, there are so many problems that are out there, right? Then how do you identify, oh, you know what, this is the problem that I want to solve. And then you are suggesting that once you have identified the problem and then go and brainstorm on the ideas, all the different ways that you can probably solve that problem and then take it forward from there. So the key is to hook yourself onto a solid enough problem that can possibly encourage you to come up with ideas after ideas. So here is a bunch of examples to sort of bring home the point. Look at this company called Paperboat, Hectare Food. Now, the guys who founded Paperboat, and many of the Indians are familiar with this brand called Paperboat, they used to work in Coca-Cola. And the challenge with Coca-Cola, Tropicana, and all that international beverage brands was that they would be international and they would not have the insights of what clicks in a domestic setup or in an Indian context. And the whole anchoring of paperboard was nostalgia. Now, how do we bring the flavors that yeah. one would be consuming as a child, Aam Panna, Kala Khatta, Kala Jamun, and very esoteric stuff that uh, Tropicana would not bother to even look at considering it is not a huge market. So Tropicana would stick to the tried and tested apple juice, orange juice, or maybe mixed fruit juice. Dabur would do that, ITC would do that, and they are big players out there in the Indian market. But this company cracked this nostalgia piece up. And by very clever packaging, by very clever positioning, and by really sourcing some good quality produce from local farms, they really established a niche for themselves. So the point which I want to arrive at is understanding problem has to be a methodical approach. And there are three very simple tips which I would like to offer to my audience today. The first thing is one needs to develop very, very good listening skills. I believe that as a generation, we are losing out on our capacities to listen better. Think about that for a moment, Vijay. That whenever we talk about communication skills, the very first thing that springs up in our mind is good speaking, isn't it? We somehow reduce communication to good speaking. That's true. Whereas communication, anybody would appreciate, is far more about listening than speaking. Because if everybody were to listen, then, I mean, if everybody were to speak, then who is there to listen? So listening with intent is very, very important. Listening not about what the person is saying, but what the person is meaning. Because many times when you talk to the customer, as David Kelly of IDEO says, that customer lacks the vocabulary to put her emotions into words. If I ask a customer, what's your problem? She may not tell it to you, not because she does not want to, or she does not know, but she cannot. It's just an inefficiency or a deficiency of articulating it And that is where good listening skills, good probing skills are very critical. So that's the first skill on discovering problems. The second skill is good observation skills. If I were to go out surveying people and asking them, and that's something I do quite regularly, asking them about who do you think is the best observer in the world, and invariably people come back with Japanese. So Japanese have really mastered the good observation skills. And this largely goes back to the way the Japanese language is written. Unlike English language, which has alphabets, Japanese language has symbols. And a child has to master close to about 30,000 symbols to really get a grasp on the Japanese language. And these symbols are different in very, very subtle ways. 
and that's where from a very early childhood a person is able to develop very very acute observation skills right so the point which i want to offer to you is when you are trying to observe something have a strong sense of observation observe anomalies anomalies means things that do not comply with theories this is how it's supposed to happen but if it doesn't happen that way these are called anomalies so that's another thing which one so good listening skills so listen with intent observe with purpose and the third thing about identifying the problem is empathy empathy means that if i were in that place how different would i have or how similar would i have reacted it is very easy to sympathize but it is very very difficult to empathize it is an example of empathy versus sympathy okay so if you look at tata motors they had some blockbuster products coming out in the commercial vehicle segment but not so much in the passenger vehicle segment and two of the products which i would like to contrast over here is tata nano versus tata ace incidentally both of these products pretty much had the same team headed by uh, young girish wag uh, whereas tata ace went on to become a very very successful product almost as much as a category creator by itself tata ace was created purely from the perspective of empathy so when the team was embarking on the tata ace journey in the early 2000s they went about talking to these auto drivers truck drivers mini truck drivers etc as to what do they want in a carrier and they all realized that they need a around 1 ton carrier carrying capacity which can maneuver both at the highway as well as the city traffic etc etc so they came up with a four wheeler which was an absolute category creator called tata ace and today almost any product that you get from amazon flipkart big basket is most likely coming through a tata ace but when the same team went on to tata nano project tata nano didn't start with empathy tata nano started with sympathy there was certain tata traveling in his car looking out of the window seeing a family of four people on a bike or a scooter mm. getting drenched in the rain and he felt for them bechare poor people wish they had a car if he would have actually bothered to speak to them that if i get a car for you for 1 lakh rupees would you have the money to buy petrol for it would you have the parking space mm-hmm. would you have money for maintenance of the car maybe he would have gotten an answer which wouldn't have encouraged him to take that path but he didn't but he because he felt for them so empathy is has to be the starting point of innovation you're not sympathy you're not solving a problem for somebody you're solving your problem with somebody with is pretty uh, hmm. modern so just to paraphrase if one were to really understand the problem one needs to develop good observation skills good listening skills and a deep sense of empathy for the people whom you are wanting to really help that's my view wow i think those are like really really interesting points and i think very important as well like you know unless you listen and observe and you have empathy i think and as you mentioned earlier starting with the idea thinking that you know what oh i have such a great idea and then forgetting to ask the question who is this idea for and what is this idea for is i think you know it, it's really uh, not leading you anywhere or maybe you know you might end up with the, with the so many ideas but none of them like that stands out right and also in your book you also talk about rites agarwal of oyo where he you know thus to the point of empathy right he went on to stay at all these different hotels where he felt what it feels like for the travelers when they go on these all the budget hotels where there is no predictability and that's the word that he uses a lot which is is just the problem that he wanted to solve is just wanted to make sure that 
predictability in the travel, right? That makes a lot of sense. As you said, right, you know, now that you have a problem that you've identified, okay, this is the problem that I want to solve, and then you go on brainstorming a lot of ideas, then how do you take it forward from there? Like, how do you validate or know that out of the 10 different ideas that I have come up with, which is probably the idea that I want to develop further, which is the idea that might succeed? Is there also a framework that you want to give to people on, you know, picking the idea? Now, there are two ways in which I can shortlist my bouquet of ideas. One is through intuition. Second is through experimentation. Now, both have their pluses and minus. Most likely, when people pick an idea, they go with pure intuition. Now, while intuition is okay, I don't have anything against intuition, but intuition has this very fundamental limitation. Intuition works only under the condition in which what you are choosing for is similar to what you have chosen for in past. So if the number of variables which are beyond your control are fixed, or at least you are aware of, then intuition works. So intuition works under the condition where there is a quick feedback loop, where the degree of variability is very low, and where the context does not change radically. So that is where intuition works. But if you are really embarking on something so novel, then maybe your intuition would lead you to a wrong alley. And that's why you need to experiment. And the whole premise of design thinking is that within a given time and budget, can I really pack as many experiments as possible instead of choosing an idea out? And that's where if you look at the context of innovation, we talk about two types of errors, type one error and type two error. Type one error is called as failed innovation and type two error is called mm -hmm. as a missed innovation. So failed innovation means you picked up an idea which turned out to be a wrong idea and you still went about investing money onto it. And type two error is called as when you didn't even pick up an idea which ended up being a winning idea. An example is uh, Bill Gates. So a couple of years back in an interview, Bill Gates uh, has admitted one of his biggest career mistakes. And he says that the biggest career mistake that uh, Gates had was not picking up Android. Android was gobbled up by Google somewhere in early 2000s for a meager $50 million. That's about it. For a meager $50 million, mm -hmm. they took on this company, which became the dominant standard of how we use mobile telephony today. $50 million, that's about it. So the point which I want to make here is when you are trying to pick an idea from many ideas, you are more likely to make the type 2 error. And these type 2 errors are so mm -hmm. costly that they can almost foreclose your entire company or the entire fortunes for the time being. So the only salvage which one can think of is that if I have 10 ideas and I really want to choose one of those 10 ideas, then the nine ideas should be given a proper chance instead of randomly picking up one idea. And how do you give them a proper chance? You develop prototypes, rough prototypes, and you just bounce it off with people. So an example would be as follows. Suppose Oyo, since you're talking about Oyo, suppose Oyo wants to introduce a new format for its rooms. Now, in this new format that Oyo wants to introduce, they want to check that should I have a high price or should I keep a low price and let the customers buy or the guests buy whatever add-ons they want. These could be quilt, this could be an extra bedding, this could be maybe an extra soap or anything of that sort. And I can run this A-B test very quickly within the same city, five hotels in one part of the city, another five hotels in another part of the city and check the customer satisfaction scores over a matter of one week. This kind of an experimentation would be far more informative and indicative of what the customer really wants rather than any kind of a guesswork. So with the help of technology, we can now for a very certainty pack a lot more experiments and take our intuition and gut feel out of decision making. 
And that's what we advocate in design thinking. Wow. That's really very structured way of, you know, taking your ideas and taking this to the next level. Now, since we're talking about design thinking, uh, you know, which is formed of the words, if we just go with the words, it's design your thinking. And earlier I had Dr. Radhakrishnan Pillai, who is an expert or who have studied Chanakya and he introduced our audience with the word called Anvikshiki, which translates into the science of thinking. So is there a process to design the thinking? Okay, I want to first ask you the simple question, what does design your thinking meaning? Does that mean it's only something that's used in the design principles or has it got anything to do with the design or it is mostly it's more talking about designing the thinking within your head? So we somehow assume, and that's maybe more to do with our education system or the way we have been brought up. We somehow think that everybody thinks well and thinking only happens with experience. But I think that thinking as much as anything else can be structured and needs to be structured. Right. And that is very, very critical for us to appreciate that. How do we structure thinking? We somehow assume that if you take enough decisions, if you spend enough time doing something, you will automatically develop your own thinking. But many times we just go through the motions. When somebody is solving a problem, he or she may not be solving the problem with the best available resources, the best available thinking. And as a result, the solutions may be suboptimal. And the point about design your thinking is that the way we design products or services or customer experiences, can we design our own ways of thinking very, very systematically? So given a problem, instead of straight away jumping into the best possible solutions, which are typically our pet solutions, or given 10 solutions straight away going and picking that one pet solution of ours, what design thinking advocates is to think slow. One of the very core philosophies of design thinking is the importance of thinking slow. Just slow down your thinking. What I'm advocating on the contrary to what the common belief is to think fast, act fast, etc. The idea is to just slow down your thinking. Because when you're slowing down your thinking, you're capturing a far more amount of inputs. You're giving your cerebral... You're absorbing a lot of information, yeah. Absolutely. You're absorbing, you're assimilating. And why rushing through it? If the problem is important, give it time. As simple as that. So I think that is why designing your own thinking is very crucial. Because the misnormer, Vijay, that people have about design thinking is that it is about designing. They often assume that design thinking should result into designing a new product or a service or a contraction. Whereas design thinking is not so much much about designing as much as about thinking. It's not about thinking what to design. It's about designing the way you think. And the outcome could be pretty much anything. It doesn't have to be any physical manifestation. So I think if we can be slightly more structured, slightly more systematic towards thinking and thinking about pretty much anything and everything in our life, I think we will be less regretful, we will be more impactful, and we can possibly translate that into our economy because as a country, I don't think anybody can claim that Indians are less creative, but certainly people will doubt if I say Indians are more disciplined. Indians can be more disciplined, and if you just look around Japanese and Germans to begin with, or maybe South Koreans or Israelis for that matter, these people are not much, much more creative than us. But I think these people are much more systematic than us. And the tyranny of the situation is that many of us do not even believe or want to believe that innovation can be disciplined or creativity can be systematized. Uh, the belief that we often have is that the moment you put a structure around creativity, it would strangle creativity. But I think the world has proven us that only the systematic, disciplined people 
can weed out the type 2 errors from the type 1 errors. So I think designing your thinking is uh, critical for us. And I believe this is the time for us to really get our act together on thinking straight. Yeah, since we're talking about you know innovation and creativity, what is the difference between innovation and creativity? So creativity is the act of generating an idea which is both novel and useful. So that's the accepted definition of creativity in psychology. Act of generating an idea that is both useful and novel. Whereas innovation is the act of implementing the idea or commercializing the idea. Now, the key for us mm. to understand is that while creativity ends with an idea, innovation starts with an idea. That's the important distinction. Mm. Innovation has to end with something that the idea results into. And the word which we use in the realm of business is commercialization. So it should result into something commercial. But in a non-business context, I can reduce commercialization to execution or implementation. But creativity has no such obligation. So for instance, I can write a poem and that's an act of creation. I can just write it and keep it in my laptop. But unless and until I convert that into something which is a book or a, or a collection of poems or stories, and I don't push it into the market, I cannot claim even remotely that I've innovated something new. So I think shipping it out is what makes it innovative. Till such time, it's in the realm of creativity. So that's a distinction. So there might be a lot of people who are listening to us might be people who are already in the creative field. So the people who are already creative or the people who think to themselves that, oh, you know what? I'm not the creative types. I am not creative enough, right? And what you also advocate is, you know what? Creativity is something that can be cultivated. Everybody can learn to be creative, right? So what are some of the traits of highly creative people? And uh, what can we probably learn from the extremely creative people and try and uh, imbibe that uh, you know, in, in our lives? So the first thing that we need to bring to notice is that creativity is a skill. So when somebody says that I am not a creative type or I do not come from a creative bent of mind or I do not work in a creative field, I think they are discounting themselves. It's just like saying that I cannot mm -hmm. walk or I cannot run. You are already putting with a label. You are starting with a label. Hmm. Yeah, which is which is wrong because... As humans, we are born with the ability to run, with the ability to swim, with the ability to do any other thing that a mammal can do. Now, it's a different thing that you may not choose to. You may not choose to swim. Even if you choose to swim, you may not end up becoming a Michael Phelps or a Ian Thorpe of swimming. But that does not mean that you do not have the ability to swim. Similarly, if somebody is not exercising creativity adequately, that simply means that, that somebody is not putting enough effort, enough attention to exercise creativity. And that's important. So we are born creative, except that we need to exercise it just like any other muscle. Any other muscle in your body, unless you exercise it, it is of no use to you. So even creativity needs to be exercised. Now coming down to the tips of creativity, and I would reduce it to three core tips that one could possibly embrace to be slightly more creative than otherwise. The first thing that we need to learn to be creative is your ability to be experimentative. Experimentative in all walks of life. Experiment with the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the places you visit, the books you read, the genre of books, the movies you watch, the songs you listen to, your hobbies, pastimes, people you meet, etc. Because when you try to experiment voraciously, you would fail. And that's the reason I'm calling it as experiment. You would fail. You might mess up in the kitchen. You might mess up with relationships. You might pick a wrong book. You might make a wrong investment. You might end up having the wrong company, etc. But then what happens is 
the threshold of failure right what you call as a failure goes up which means small small things don't bother you so much and you develop failure tolerance which means that when you do something which is of great significance great implication you are then far more resilient towards failure so that's the first thing be creative because what has happened to all of us unfortunately is that we have started taking ourselves way too seriously way too seriously which is not really required we are just a happy accident on the surface of earth that's about it so and mm. we can't lead our life with some uh, dogmas some stereotypes as edward de bono very famously says that if you don't want to change your mind why have one right if you don't want to change your mind why have one you can nothing changes in our body as much as our mind does correct our lungs don't change our mm. heart doesn't change our kidneys liver none of that changes it's only our mind which is changing so that is the experimentation bit the second aspect is what we call as associative thinking associative thinking means that instead of compartmentalizing your thinking that this is office this is my family this is my work this is fiction this is non fiction etc what is critical is that you think in a seamless manner and that's what steve jobs very famously quipped when he said that you need to connect the dots now you can connect the dots only at the hind side you can never connect the dots at the fore side which means for you to be able to connect the dots even at the hind side you should be willing to plant the dots at the first place am i right planting those dots is very very important and when you start planting the dots some of them may work some of them may not work but that is very critical that you are not compartmentalizing you are seamless you need to have a bigger range and the bigger range you can get in your life by for instance picking hobbies it's critical to pick up hobbies they can be musical hobbies they can be artistic hobbies they can be scientific hobbies they can be absolutely anything yeah how can that contribute to you know what you are doing and i think it's interesting that you also talk about this on your talk as well right so maybe you yeah. want to double click and yeah yeah sure so the thing is that one need not forcefully see if a hobby is contributing to my profession that's very important because if you are trying to ensure that the hobby contributes in some way or the other then you are possibly doing mm. that hobby in a very narrow sense so the hobby is something that you do without getting tired about it and hobby is something that you do and by taking time out and not when you do when you have nothing else to do so that's a hobby and what a hobby gives you of the many things i believe what a hobby does to you is that a hobby gives you self confidence that you know for a fact that there is an area which you are really good at and you are not really comparing yourself with somebody else a hobby also gives you a new perspective so when you go with the old problem to a new landscape it gives new stimulus to you which can possibly help you look at or reframe the problem very differently and the third thing that a hobby gives to you for example albert einstein was a very proficient violin player so richard feynman was a drummer for that matter and many of these scientists have this you know, habit of having artistic hobbies so that's very important and the third thing that a hobby gives you is it introduces you to different type of people whom you would not bump into on a day to day basis so if you are a stand up comic so by the day you are a software engineer and by the evening you are a stand up comic you would need a meet a very different type of people in the stand up comics comic space whom you would never bump into as a software developer and as a result mm. you might look at a problem and a solution very differently so coming back so the three things which one could do so one i said is experiment voraciously second is to have a wide range and not compartmentalize your thinking and that's how you do it through hobbies and the third thing is very critical of them all is you need to be able to think slow now this again and i'm impressing upon this point that we often think that i need to do too many things too fast for too many people 
I think creativity is about choosing your target very, very well. Thinking slow, not allowing yourself to get lost in the signal because we are increasingly living in a world where signal-to-noise ratios have come down radically. We have so much of a noise around us. So I think if you want to be really creative, you need to choose an area in which you want to be creative. It doesn't always have to be a profession. Many people come to me saying that, hey, my job doesn't allow me enough room to be creative. You don't have to be creative on your job. You have to be creative in your life. If it doesn't happen in the job, that's fine. You can have it outside of your job. Absolutely fine. But I think choosing an area and protecting that area uh, from the mediocrities of the world and the noises of the world, I think you can be really creative. So I think just like swimming, dancing, singing, cooking, these are all skills. Creativity is nothing but a skill. And by choosing more consciously to be more creative, I think people can really do wonders. And that's what I feel, Vijay. Awesome. I think those are really great tips right there. So the other thing that you discussed briefly on your TED Talk was questions are important. And and it's important that you ask the right question because all you need to know in this age of Google is you just need to know how to ask the right questions and there are so many answers, right? Um, so why is it important that you should asking better questions? And is there a way that somebody can think about or think differently about asking the questions? Is there a way that somebody can come up with a great questions? So why questions are important? The fact is a question defines the range of answers that you get. Here is an example. Suppose you're a maths teacher and you get into a classroom and there are all students sitting, say, second standard, third standard students sitting in your classroom and you go out and you erupt with a question and the question is, what is 5 into 2? And the answer obviously is 10. 5 into 2 is 10. So when you ask the question, what is 5 into 2? There is only one answer, which is 10. And after a pause of about a couple of seconds, the entire class erupts saying that, hey, 10. That's how they say. But instead of asking that question, you ask a slightly different question next time around in the class. And you ask, hey kids, can you tell me how many ways can I use any two numbers to come up with 10? Any two numbers. You can use any mathematical concept or a function. And they might surprise you. They would say 5 plus 5, 5 into 2, 2 into 5, 10 into 1, 20 divided by 2. Potentially, the answers are infinite. 9 plus 1, 8 plus 2. So by framing the question differently, you can change the type of answers which you get. So one of the rules which I often advocate is that never ever ask a question that leads you to one right answer. Because neither your child or your student is learning anything new, nor you are open to learning anything. That's very, very critical. If I go to Socrates, the Socratic style of teaching was that whenever Socrates was asked a question, he would always throw the question back at the audience. Jeddu Krishnamurti, I was yesterday reading a book of J. Krishnamurti, and Jeddu Krishnamurti had this very interesting way of answering questions. So if a student has asked a question to J. Krishnamurti, he would simply paraphrase the question. And ask the question that, why are we asking the question? So by probing the question, the answer itself would open up in front of you. So I think two tips which I may offer about questioning, which I think is a very critical skill, more than answering, because as Albert Einstein very famously said, uh, imagination is more important than knowledge, because knowledge tells you what is possible, uh, but imagination can tell you what could be possible. So I think Questions are more important than answer in the Google economy because answers are galore. You can have an answer for almost anything and everything under the sun. But the question is which is very critical. So two things. Never frame a question narrowly that results or leads you into one or two answers. Have more answers. And the second thing is whenever you're trying to pose a question, always try to be ready with sub-questions. Because a question 
on itself doesn't have any meaning. A question should result into a series of questions. That is where a dialogue and introspection start. And reframing the question is another important thing. For example, uh, batteries. Okay. Now, yesterday I was using a battery uh, for one of the watches, uh, clocks rather. Now, the problem with the battery is multifold. One is you do not know how much of a battery life is left. There's no indicator on the battery. Second thing is disposing of the battery itself is so treacherous job. Third is leakage that may happen in the battery. All of these are challenges. So if I've taken a battery from a watch and I do not know whether the problem is with the mechanism of the watch or the battery of the watch and I put the battery somewhere and the next time I want to use the battery, I do not know how much of a life is left in the battery, etc., etc. So instead of asking a question that how do I dispose the battery well, I may want to reframe the question. And the question is that how do I still get my watch or a clock or any electronic device working without battery? By removing the battery altogether mm. from the equation, instead of bothering about what to do with the battery, I can come up with some very radical answers. And some of these answers can be really yeah. simple, you know, commonplace, like the pro- omnipresent yeah. USB charger. USB charger is so omnipresent. Yeah. Why didn't we think of having a wall clock with the USB charger? Now, there are yeah. so many wall clocks. There are so many USB chargers all around us. It just needs a connection. So that kind of a mm. reframing of the problem can really help you solve it far better, far elegantly and can give you answers that you never thought of at the first place. So I think reframing the problem is more important than answering it perhaps. Awesome. So Pavan, I want to take a little bit of a switch from that into a bit of a personal life and in a real life scenarios, right? Since we're talking about the questions and this is the question that I love asking people is whenever you find yourself in some sort of problem in your own life, what are the questions that you often, you know, you find asking yourself? So at a philosophical level, I always believe that whatever happens to me happens because of my own doings in past. I strongly believe in this karmic cycle. I'm a you know, strong believer in this particular thing. So the first question I ask myself is that why is it happening? Okay. What did I do in past? Past may not be too many years back. Past could be just about a few moments away or yesterday. What did I do in past? So I start to understand that why is this happening to me? Why is the situation happening to me? The second thing is I buy time. Many times I realize that if there is something which is happening wrong, bad, unintended, etc. And if we can just pause for a moment instead of overreacting or even reacting spontaneously to that particular thing, it allows you more time, more stimulus and more self-confidence to attack the problem better. So I buy time. I start retrospecting and introspecting why it has been happening. And the last question which I ask is that if I don't solve the problem, what is going to happen in the future? And if I really solve the problem, what is going to happen in the future? And the answer to me often springs up that if I simply ignore this moment, if I simply tolerate and go through the emotions, I don't react at all, that's not going to hurt me one bit. So I choose not to. So I have this interesting rule in life, which I try to adhere to in every given possible situation. That's called ITC. So it's a simple mm-hmm. hack which I have created over the last many years now to look at any situation. The ITC stands for ignore, wise ignore. So most things that comes to me, problems, issues, people, etc. My first reaction has been to simply ignore, just ignore them. Okay. It's very critical to be focused on what you are just doing before that interruption came. If you choose to ignore the interruption, you can continue with whatever you thought of is important. So ignore, learn to ignore things, learn to ignore people. That's very critical. Otherwise, you know, 
you will feel obliged to please people, you will feel obliged to respond to them, make them happy, etc. If you can't ignore situations, if you can't ignore people, if you think that is bothering you over and over and over again, then T, T stands for tolerate. Develop a thick skin. I believe that many relationships go sour because people want to have the last word in it. Ye to ye, this then that. Mm. They just spoil the relationship. So just tolerate. The guy wanted to make a point, the guy made a point. Let's move on, that's fine. He's happy. That's about it. Okay, the objective is for you to mm. have mental peace and not for him to learn a lesson or for you to teach a lesson to him. So T stands for tolerate. I is ignore, T is tolerate. And in the rarest situations where I realize that you can't really ignore, you can't really tolerate, in the rarest situation is when we go out and we do what is called as C. C stands for confront. Confront happens very mm. rarely and I realize that by confronting, you, you seldom change things. So I think these simple hacks, these simple heuristics which come through your own thinking in life has helped. And that is what I meant that if each one of us can learn to be a better thinker or design your own thinking, I think we can be both more peaceful with oneself and more impactful to others is what I believe. I really love the, the framework. And uh, yeah. so are you more of a framework person like where you love deriving frameworks for all the kind of problems that you deal with, maybe in the business or in the life? Yeah, it, it helps me. Uh, I call them as heuristics. So I'm a very heuristics driven person. I wouldn't use the word mm-hmm. intuition. I'll use the word heuristics. Uh, heuristics are logical. Intuitions need not always be logical or at least intuitions logic is not apparent to the outside world. So I'll give you a heuristics, another heuristics, which has helped me profoundly in my career. So think of a Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. There are three circles in the Venn diagram. And whenever an engagement comes to me in my career, okay, a speaking engagement, workshop, a conference, some sort of a travel, etc. So everything that I receive in my career as a request or as a business coming in, I always take it through this filter. The three circles in the filter is money, knowledge, and brand. Okay? So if an engagement gives me money, does the engagement gives me new knowledge? Or does it have a strong brand affinity, which I can leverage? And I realize that if I do not get two out of these three, I'll simply say no to mm. that engagement. Now, what happens? Obviously, there are some type two errors, which is called false negatives. But then what happens is that if you take your incoming stimulus through this filter again and again, you do not have regret. That's critical. Mm. It is a regret of not having thought through or having taken a decision you know, without giving it a consideration. There would obviously be decisions which I would regret, but I would regret far lesser in the absence of a framework, which is I go to first principles, I kind of bother myself over and over again with every single situation that might crop up. So I think having this ITC framework, having a Venn diagram really helps me think through the situations more clearly and reduces my own guilt of having taken a wrong decision. So that's what helps. Awesome. So is there any particular ways or the things that, uh, you know, especially uh, for the people who are parents and might be listening to this podcast, some of the things that you, some of the practices that you do with your kids to uh, help them become more creative, are that some of those things that you want to share? Yeah. So uh, about kids, I think uh, children are creative. I don't think there is a doubt about that. Yeah. What parents need to do is to let them be creative. I think that's very critical. Let them be creative. So children have more IQ than us. That is scientifically proven. That's called the Flynn effect. So the IQ is high. The EQ is uh, low usually. Uh, the EQ goes down with every generation emotional quotient. But then if you can cultivate EQ by conditioning 
the environment at your home, etc. I think EQ can also go up. But more importantly, if you look at creativity, so I have three simple tips which which can be useful to for parenting. I'm loving this set of three that's coming over and over again for every single question. Yeah, it helps. <laughs> Please go ahead. Yeah, three is a good heuristics both to remember and to uh, recollect and to share. Yeah. So the first thing is importance of unstructured play. Many times under the disguise of discipline, parents try to structure their child's day to the totality by packing their child's day with hobby classes, uh, homework. This is the time for uh, watching movies. This is the time for watching Cartoon Network only for this time, etc. So by packing the entire day so tightly, they are mm. leaving hardly any room for spontaneity. They are leaving hardly any room for play, uh, unstructured thinking. And that's very critical because if the child does not have unstructured time, she will not be able to develop cognitive skills that allows her to manage her own emotions, her own time. And there is no guarantee. There is absolutely no guarantee. And the research is on the contrary. Uh, there's no guarantee that early start for a child would result into some prodigious achievements later in the life. There's absolutely nothing to demonstrate that. If a child is too disciplined at the age of two will be a prime minister or a president, there is hardly any proof of that. Uh, the child, there are, there's a bigger proof that the child might slip into depression in the teenage and later on of having achieved so much so early in their life. So that's the first thing, the importance of unstructured time, unstructured play. The second critical thing is that a few rules. So I was reading this book called Range by David Epstein and I'm, I'm profoundly influenced by this book because it reinforces, validates some of the assumptions which I've had for a very long time. So this book talks about the upbringing of uh, Tiger Woods and uh, that of Roger Federer. So while Tiger Woods was an absolute prodigy from the age of one, Tiger Woods started playing golf almost. And by the time he was hitting the international circuits, he had huge amount of experience under his belt. But Roger Federer, on the contrary, wasn't even sure if tennis is his calling in life. But I think coming down to the parenting style of Roger Federer's parents and Tiger Woods' parents, what comes out very stark is Roger Federer's parents did not have many rules. Many rules. There was just one rule that Federer's mother had. And the only rule she had is never ever cheat uh, and he is one of the most profound gentlemen out there in the world of sports Roger Federer that he is so I think the second rule is have few rules few clear rules okay uh, when parents make ad hoc rules ad hoc on a daily basis and then change them abruptly arbitrarily the child gets confused the child starts second guessing mm -hmm. parents intention attention so I think it's useful to have few clear laid out rules so unstructured play few rules and the third thing is as Mahatma Gandhi used to say, be the change you wish to see. I think the same thing applies to childbearing also. It will be uh, such a uh, hypocrisy and a paradox if you were to really ask your, or expect your child to not play games, video games, I mean to say, or not be on a screen or mobile phone or iPad, etc. And if you find it difficult to do it yourself. So I think if, if you can create an environment at home I'm not advocating the only way, but one of the ways which has worked for me is to create an environment at home where you study, you read books. And I've seen that my daughter started picking up reading books. So me and my wife, both of us enjoy books. And I saw that her picking books and it doesn't matter what she's reading. What matters is her attention span. She's able to sit mm. at a place for a long amount of time with a book. The genre is absolutely mm. <laughs> inconsequential. You can see her in the background, by the way. So the genre is absolutely yeah. inconsequential. So, but that is very, very critical, I guess. So I think if you can cultivate such cues in the family, like having a library, 
instead of having 10 gadgets in yeah. the house, not why not have a small library? Mm. It cost pretty much the same, but the returns and investments are yeah. humongously different. So if you can have those cues in the family, which the kind of character or the temperament which you would like to build in your child, I think this can really, really... I'm no, I'm no expert on childbearing. I'm also a struggling father as, as you're talking. But I think some of the things which I can offer would be this much. Yeah. Awesome. We are coming to nearing the end of this conversation, but I have this round, what I call is the enlightening round, where I'm going to throw a bunch of questions to you, where you, know, you are expected to give some short answers mm-hmm. to them. So what inspires you to do everything that you do? So my intent or my purpose is what inspires me. My purpose is to touch as many lives uh, as possible meaningfully. So that's the common driving factor to whatever I do, whether it is about teaching, writing, reading, or having such conversations. So touching as many lives as possible meaningfully is what inspires me. What is the one wrong belief that you had for the longest period of time about yourself? I used to believe that uh, I cannot be emotionally intelligent. But I think over the last few months or so, I've tried to develop emotional intelligence. And I think I can see it in my family and uh, people around me that they're able to reciprocate my growth of emotional intelligence. So I think that that was my belief that emotional intelligence is something which is, uh, which cannot be cultivated. And I think I've managed to uh, build it a bit. Could you share a book that has kind of shaped your way of thinking or maybe, you know, help you change the way of thinking drastically? Yeah, so a lot of books uh, which have influenced me tremendously. But if I were to pick up a few of them, one is Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. That's one book which has influenced me profoundly. The second is uh, New Earth, A Whole New Earth, and uh, Eckhart Tolle. That's another book. The one which I have really revered a lot, that book is uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. So these books have had a deep impact on the way I think and I read, I reread those books. So the thing is that they keep nudging your way of thinking and your behavior in a very constant manner. And we are all ever-changing people, ever-changing thought processes. I think the more books I read, the more structured my thinking becomes, the more corrected my behavior becomes. But these three books, Road Less Traveled, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, and A Whole New Earth would uh, stand out as the books which have influenced me the most. On that note, your new book, Design Your Thinking, is out there. So could you share quickly about what the book is all about and why should listeners pick the book, Design Your Thinking? Yeah, thank you. So Design Your Thinking is a book on creativity. It's about creative problem solving. And the intent of the book is to help almost anybody, whether it's a homemaker, a student, an entrepreneur, uh, an executive, or almost anybody to be able to solve problems in a more systematic, predictable, and reliable manner. So it draws from the discipline of design thinking and also different genres of thinking and creative problem solving. What this book uh, uniquely brings to the table as against uh, the current books available in market on design thinking is threefold. The first thing is it brings a lot of perspective from India because the dominant belief about design thinking is that it's a Western philosophy applies only to high-tech companies that do in the Western Hemisphere. But then I think a lot of Indian companies are doing some amazing work with creative problem-solving and innovation. And through more than 30 case studies in the book, I try to bring that perspective to the audience. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it adds the dimension of scale. Because one of the reservations I have with the current way of design thinking is that you validate an idea and then you declare success. But then what happens with that fantastic idea? 
And I believe that unless and until you take that idea all the way to its logical conclusion, there is absolutely no way in which you can claim that, yes, you have solved the problem in an enduring manner. So I think scale is another aspect which I add to the design thinking model, and I give uh, examples of that. And the third contribution which I may call out of this book is I offer a whole range of tool sets, skill sets, and mindset that somebody could embrace to be a better problem solver. So much so that my intent of the book is that when somebody reads the book, the book should pretty much substitute me. So if someone really hire me to conduct a design thinking workshop, and if the person would read the book, instead of hiring me, they should be able to do it all by themselves. That is what I would actually like, uh, like this book to achieve. So that's where I've peppered the book with a lot of tool sets, mindsets, skill sets that one could hone, and of course, a bunch of examples from uh, Indian companies on how they have managed to do it to inspire people that, yes, they can so. And absolutely, some of the things that we discussed uh, in this conversation earlier uh, about the ideas, about creativity, about ideating or prototyping and testing, and as Pavan uh, mentioned about scaling, all of this is included in the book. I'll drop the link on the description of this episode. Just go grab this book. It's available right now on uh, Amazon and Flipkart. As I mentioned, I'll drop the link there. So, Dr. Pawan, I have one last question that I want to ask to you. Before I ask you that question, uh, if people would like to reach out to you or get in touch with you, what is the best possible way? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the most uh, preferred way. So it's linkedin.com slash IN slash Pawan Sony. So that's my LinkedIn ID. I'll link that up on the description as well. Go ahead and check him out on LinkedIn. And uh, uh, for more frameworks like what he has shared on this episode, as you guys might have figured out, he is someone who has figured out a lot of these hacks to uh, a lot of you know problems, whether that's in business or whether that's in life, including parenting now. So, <laughs> so here's the last question. Imagine that you're standing on a stage and this is probably the largest stadium that has ever been built in the history of the world. And there are millions and millions of people on that stadium. And you are on the stage and you have been given only one minute of the time to share the most important lesson that you've learned in your life. What would be your message? So here's my message. It's about innovation evangelism and the belief that uh, it's about innovation and creativity, the belief that anybody and everybody should be able to be creative. Because by being creative, you are living your life to the fullest. And uh, for you to be creative, exercise creativity, you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be cut out from a different cloth. But all you need to do is to realize your potential, be experimentative, and do these simple five things. The first thing is, whenever somebody speaks, try to listen with intent. Be a good listener. The world needs good listeners. The second thing is, be a good observer. Whenever you go to places, a new country, a new city, even an existing place which you have been to, try to see the things with a new eye. So be a good observer. The third thing is, don't be too judgmental. Because by being judgmental, you are not only not allowing yourself to learn new things, but you are also judging the other person harshly of what he or she could potentially do. Don't be too judgmental. The fourth aspect perhaps would be network. Network voraciously. Learn from people through your network. And the last thing, is to think slow. In the world which is moving so fast, it is very, very important that you slow down your thinking so that you can distill out the few things that you can really make a profound impact on. And that is how you would become a far more creative individual and possibly help live your life better. Thank you so much. 
Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Pawan. It has been such a great, great conversation. A lot of insights and I'm sure people listening to this have a lot to go back and, you know, um, implement in their life. And I highly recommend for you guys to go back and listen to this episode one more time because that's what I'm going to do again because there are a lot of tons and tons of insights, whether that's about coming with idea, whether that's about solving problems, whether that's about creativity, whether that's about design thinking. I mean, in the past almost one hour, that's a lot. Thank you. Thank you once again. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Vijay. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inspiring Talk podcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or wherever you get a podcast from. I hope you learned a lot from this episode. If you did, send me a voice note on your biggest takeaway from this episode by visiting theinspiringtalk.com forward slash speak. That is theinspiringtalk.com forward slash speak. I always love listening to the notes that you send my way. You can find the show notes of this episode at theinspiringtalk.com forward slash 108. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you in the next. Now go out there and do something inspiring.